morning, church. Our reading comes from Romans chapter 8, 31 through 39 today. When then shall we say to these things, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, now it's my turn. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, let's uh, pray uh, together before we uh, turn to God's word. Um, Lord, what a wonderful message that is, that, that there can be nothing to separate us from you. Lord, that um, ease and comfort, wealth can't separate us from you. Poverty, suffering, distress, sorrow, doubt can't separate us from you. Lord, you love your people so dearly, so much, that you spared not your only son, but you gave him for all, that we might be reconciled to you, that we might be with you. What a beautiful picture, Lord. Thank you for, as Kyle reminded us this morning, the gospel, that God so loved us that he sent his son to redeem us. And Lord Jesus, thank you for coming for us. We, we didn't cry out to you. We didn't want you. When you came, we abused you, and yet, Lord, you came and you won a people to yourself. And so, Lord, we look forward to that day when that, that wedding feast is made complete, when we're united with you, when we are made new again, when our suffering is over, when our labor is done. And, Lord, I think of my sister Joanne uh, Sadler this morning as she's still waiting in the hospital for what comes next for her. Lord, would you give her comfort? And Lord, this morning I ask that you would be with her in a special way, that you would remind her of that love you have for her, that provision you have for her. And Lord, I pray that she would see that in a way that she hasn't seen it for a while, that your word as she reads this morning would be live to her, that it would speak to her heart, her soul. Lord, I pray for the saints here at Trinity as we visit her in the hospital, that we would carry with us the, the very aroma, the very presence of Christ for her. And Lord, I pray that you would just continue to provide and, and, and heal and restore her and lead her in the way that you want her to go. Have mercy on our sister, we ask. And Father, I want to pray for your word now as we turn to your word, as we turn to hear from you. We need to hear that message. And so, Lord, would you feed our spirit? Lord, would you strengthen our faith? Feed our faith in Christ. Remind us of the tremendous promises that rest on his shoulders that he carries for us and that we are heirs to. Uh, Lord, thank you for uh, my brother Sherman coming to preach, and I pray that you would uh, give him a special 
um, filling of the Spirit as he preaches this morning, that we would hear specially from you. Uh, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So I'm not preaching this morning. Stop applauding. Don't do that. Um, but I asked my friend uh, Sherman to come and preach. He's the third one of the guys. So we met Kyle before. Uh, this is Sherman. So Kyle's the young buck. I'm the old guy. So I guess that makes Sherman the middle-aged guy, the, the, the one who keeps us sane and, and level. Uh, he's pastor in Boron, uh, Boron First Baptist. And uh, he, he's kind of the glue that holds the, the guys together because he comes into town here into Lancaster on a regular basis. And when he's in town, he always asks if we can get together. And, and it just is really great to share with these other two guys. It's such an encouragement to say, you know, we're thinking the same kind of things. We're worried about the same kind of things. We're, we're struggling with the same issues. And here, you're not alone. We're not, you know, the only church in the valley that is like this. We are all struggling through this stuff together, trying to figure out how to make sense of the world that's the way it is and, and the gospel in the middle of it and how do we follow Jesus. And so uh, Sherman is always an encouragement to us because he's so glad to meet together with us. And, and uh, it's just a blessing. And so I, I'm very pleased to have him come and present uh, God's word to us this morning. So Sherman, would you come and share God's word with us, brother? So good morning, and I uh, just want to thank you so much for welcoming here today. Um, it reminds me a lot of my, my little church as well, the, the, the loving nature of this congregation and how people can get caught up and kind of lost in catching up and almost forget that it's, it's time to, to get started. Uh, but I'm, I'm really also grateful for the, the kind things that uh, Tim has said. And, uh, but I just need to share something with you about, about your pastor. I've been pastoring First Baptist Church now for 11 years, and uh, First Baptist Church is a small church in a tiny little town. And uh, I've been really the only paid staff member for the entire time that I've been um, there at First Baptist Church. And several years ago, I really began to grow in my theology, and I realized I needed um, to, to surround myself with other pastors and, um, and glean from them and, and, you know, work through some issues that I had been having. And, um, and so I began to connect with pastors outside of the community, and I reached out to a mutual friend of ours, Richard Barcelos, and, uh, and he and I started actually having lunch together from time to time. And then he suggested that, uh, that we connect with some of the other pastors that he knows. And before long, um, we were meeting together with Tim and, and Kyle at Chili's and uh, for lunch for fellowship. And I, again, I looked forward to that every, every time we can connect. And uh, it was really important to me to be able to connect with pastors of similar theological perspectives and, uh, and, and really to be able to just kind of sit, you know, across the table from men who were facing the same kind of challenges that I was. And I'm going to tell you that time was really encouraging to me. Uh, but then the world changed um, in 2020 and brand new challenges emerged. And uh, as I think back over those last few years, I can say that, you know, I did my best as a pastor to honor God and to be faithful to the cause of Christ and to love his people through some dark times. But on the other side of that, I can see where, you know, I had really, I've fallen short and, and it would be an understatement to say that the last few years had been a, a huge challenge to me personally. And uh, leading a church through the pandemic required, you know, 
at times more than I really had to give, and I'm sure Tim could say the same thing. In fact, uh, there were times that leading a church that way through the pandemic really came to a personal costs, a great personal cost to me. And there were moments that uh, I was a breath away from, from really walking away from the ministry altogether. There, there were times where I thought, Lord, I just don't see how I can continue on. But by God and his grace, he allowed Tim and Kyle and I to stay connected through that time and to find a way to meet with each other and to pray for each other. And it has been their friendship and their prayer and their brotherly love and their understanding of the unique challenges facing pastors that really strengthened me and encouraged me to continue. Their time and their listening ear and their encouragement was God's providential gift to me that helped me to endure uh, all the way to this day. And I mention this because I just wanted to express my gratitude uh, publicly uh, for your pastor. And more importantly, I wanted you to know that, that he too went through a lot for the last few years. Uh, but his commitment for you and his love for this church and the word of God never at any moment wavered. And he has been an inspiration to me um, personally. And, and so um, it's, it's an understatement for me to say that it's a privilege for me to stand here in his pulpit with you this morning. But with that, um, another one of my favorite preachers, H.B. Charles, once said that if the Bible were a gold ring, then Romans chapter 8 would be the centrally mounted diamond in that ring. And, and I completely agree with that because Romans 8 is where Paul summarizes his case for one of the most important and glorious doctrines of the entire Bible, and that is the security of those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, or simply the truth that those who trust in Christ are completely safe in the hands of God. Romans 8 is the, the pinnacle of, of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ because, because this chapter brings us to the summit of our hope the divine assurance that our salvation in Christ, the promise that God will, will see us safely all the way home. One of my favorite hymns um, is Come Thou Fount, and uh, one of my favorite verses is verse 4, and it reads, O that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face, full arrayed in blood-washed linen, how I'll sing thy sovereign grace. Come, my Lord, no longer tarry, bring thy promises to pass, for I know thy power will keep me till I'm home with thee at last. That is the assurance that Paul is communicating to the church in Rome, and he's communicating to us in this church here in Palmdale, California. Those who trust in Christ are safe in the hands of God. Romans 8 is certainly the glorious diamond in that ring called the Bible, but the section of Romans before us today, these verses that, that, that are here, that I'm preaching on today, for me is the pinnacle cut of that diamond, is the very tip top of the mountain. Because in these verses, Paul is going to make his closing argument on why we believers can simply rest assured in our gospel hope, and he does so in a way that leaves absolutely no doubt that no matter what life throws at us, whether it's lockdowns or, or war, 
whether we win or whether we lose, or whether we prosper or we fail in our endeavors, no matter what, our future hope in Christ is absolutely certain. And that is what is on my heart to share with you this morning as we come to the text. Now, before we jump all the way in here, let me just kind of remind you of the landscape of Romans. This was a letter written by Paul to the church in Rome, and and he wrote this for a number of reasons. Uh, But the overarching reason was Paul wrote this letter because he wanted to explain the gospel in great detail. And he did this to edify the Roman church, but also to demonstrate the fact that Paul deserved their support uh, in spreading the gospel because he had hoped to use Rome as a launching pad to go further west into Europe. But this, but this letter actually became a master theological work because what he wrote is the best and most complete exposition of the gospel in the entire Bible. It, it, you know, it's easy for us to forget that fact as we read these words, but the fact is we understand the gospel as well as we do because of what Paul had written down here. Right? It is the most complete unpacking of the gospel of grace in all of Christian literature, and I absolutely love the letter to the Romans. And, and as Paul declares, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And then right after that breathtaking declaration, Paul, in chapters 1 through 4, explains in great detail what the gospel is. And he begins his explanation not with the message that Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. No, he begins where you need to begin, which was with the bad news that makes the good news necessary. The bad news of man's condition, the fact that we are all sinners, deserving of God's justice and his, and his wrath, right? And, and because of that, we have no hope to save ourselves. And then right after the bad news, Paul then explains the glorious good news, the good news of what God has done for us through Jesus Christ in spite of us. As Paul writes in chapter 3, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This verse itself is worth the price of admission. Then after explaining what the gospel is, Paul in chapter 5 then unpacks for us the blessings the gospel gives to those who believe, which includes peace with God, access to his grace and his presence, and a hope that can never be taken from us. And then Paul explains um, in the last chapter, chapter 5, how it is that, um, that the gospel works. I mean, how is it that Christ can come and bear all of our sins? How is it that he can make us righteous? And Paul explains that just as Adam was our federal or covenantal representative by birth, Jesus becomes our covenantal head by faith. And just as we died in Adam and because because he sinned, we all find life in Jesus Christ because our faith unites him in his death to sin and his resurrection to new life which, by the way, is what our baptism symbolizes. And then after that, Paul addresses some common objections about the gospel from both the legalist and the antinomian, and then he declares in chapter 7 the freedom and hope that believers have in Christ. 
Romans chapter 7 has been a great source of encouragement and hope to me throughout the years. And, and all of that by itself ought to be enough to cause our hearts to soar to heaven in, in worship. But then Paul continues on, and he helps us to ascend even higher as we begin chapter 8. This is where Paul declares that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The idea of condemnation has been completely taken off the table for anyone who believes in Christ. And then we continue to rise even higher as he points out the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in us as proof that we're not only just redeemed, but we are children and heirs with Christ, heirs of a glorious hope. And then we continue to rise even higher still as Paul declares that even the worst sufferings that we encounter in this life are nothing compared to the glorious hope that is guaranteed us. The, the, the hope of our final redemption of our minds and bodies and characters all made perfect as we live perfectly in, in the world in personal fellowship with God. And then Paul points us to the reality that God himself does for us even the things that we don't even know we need to do. And he tells us about how the Holy Spirit was given to us and resides in us and intercedes for us and prays for the things we don't even know we need to pray for. And then it just keeps getting better. Paul affirms that salvation is not only a present reality, it was de decreed by him, ordained by God in eternity past. Our salvation is guaranteed because God is the one who ordained it. And then Paul reminds us of the promise that God works all things out, all things out for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God works all things, even the worst of things out for our ultimate good. And if that were not enough by itself to convince you of the certainty you have because of the gospel of Christ, Paul now then takes all of that, and he grabs us by the hand and pulls us to the very tip-top summit of our hope in the remainder of this chapter. And in verse 31, Paul writes, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? In other words, in light of all of this, in light of all of these things that we've been talking about, what else can we say? What else do you need to hear? What else do you need to know? What else do you need to find out to be convinced of this hope? And then he asked the rhetorical question, I think, that ends all rhetorical questions. If God is for us, who can be against us? The creator of the heavens and the earth. The ones who knows all, sees all, and can do all. If he is the one that's for us, who could be against us? And there's really only one right answer, and that is no one. No one can be against us. And the reason we know this to be true is not because of who we are, but because of who he is, because of what we know about him and his attributes. And by the way, this is why it's important that, that we study as a church the attributes of God. It's, it's, a, it's, it's critical for us to, to grow in our confidence so that we know him better and are confident in his ability to fully redeem us. For example, God is self-existent or completely independent, or he possesses the attribute what is known as aseity, meaning that he owes his existence to nothing else but himself. God was not caused or brought into existence by anything else. He doesn't come into being because of something external from him. He doesn't depend on anything 
for his existence like we do, which means there isn't anything that can manipulate him or threaten him or extort him. And there's nothing that can force him to go back on his word to us. God is also immutable, which means he doesn't change. He doesn't change his plans, he doesn't change his nature, and he doesn't change his mind. The word tells us over and over that God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And what, and what that simply means for us is no one can talk him out of his plan to change us. He doesn't change his mind about saving you. And it means nothing can alter his, his decree of what he has ordained to do. And even more, God is omnipotent. He is completely all-powerful, and as such, there is no one or nothing that can thwart his will, and there's nothing that can overpower him, which then leads us to one of my favorite attributes of God, his sovereignty. We sang about his sovereignty this morning. God absolutely rules over everything in his universe. The late R.C. Sproul once said, there is not a maverick molecule in the universe Everything and everyone obeys God's sovereign command. And I can go on and on, but, but the answer to Paul's question is simple and, and indisputable. There's nothing or no one in all of creation that can be against us if God is for us. Now, ultimately, this is not about athletic competitions as some people would like to assert. And this is not about us being successful and achieving all of our goals and dreams in this life, as, as some prosperity preachers might say. And this isn't about our nation winning all of its wars because our causes are always just, as we know they are not. What Paul is saying here in context relates to the certainty of the hope of the inheritance that we have. Because, if, if our, because of our faith in Christ, if God is for us, then then who could be against us? God has promised that those who put their faith in Christ will be saved, and they possess the moment that they believe an inheritance that can never be stripped away. And that is something that is just a foreign idea to us. Because as secure as the world is around us, everything that we possess ultimately in this world can be taken from us, whether it's our property or our lives. But there's an, an inheritance that can never be taken away that we are adopted into God's family, we are given the Holy Spirit as a guarantee or an earnest deposit, and no one can change that. Because if God is for us and our salvation, then who could stand against that? But Pastor Sherman, what about those people who claim to walk away from their faith? I've heard this question many times over the last few years. What about those people who are, are deconstructing, deconstructing as, as they say? I think that deconstruction or that word is a kind of a social contagion nowadays because it seems like everybody and their brother has a deconstruction story. But what about them? Well, the Apostle John, I think, answers that question aptly in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would, not have, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be, become plain that they all are not of us. The truth is, the scriptures make it clear that if a person walks away from their faith, then they really weren't of the faith. 
If someone claims to be a Christian, but they walk away from their faith, never to return again in this life, they really didn't know Jesus. They might have been religious, but they didn't have a saving faith. If you just remember the parable of the sower, there were some who received the word with great joy and it sprouted up, but because of persecution, it weathered away and was fruitless. And then there were the others that heard the word and received it. It began to grow, but it bore no fruit because of the cares of this world, proving them to be unbelievers. The truth is, there will be people in this world, and even people in the church who look like Christians, at times talk like Christians, and even walk like Christians for a time, who end up falling away, who ultimately had a counterfeit faith. But those who truly are born again, those who are truly trusting in Christ and Christ alone, as we sang this morning, they will endure to the end, even if there are moments in extended periods of time, they fall down and make a mess of things. Because God is the author of their salvation and nothing can stand against him. So if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, the truth is, Paul could have just stopped right there. He could have just stopped right there and just simply moved on to Romans chapter 9, and he could have ended with this statement, but he doesn't do that. He goes on. He says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? There is so much rich theology in this one verse, I could spend an hour and a half on this verse alone. But Tim said, I can't take that long, so I won't. <laughs> The reality is, is uh, there's a lot that I could say here, but there are a couple of things I want to draw your attention to with this little section. First of all, I want you to notice that Paul makes it clear that God is the one who gave his son for our redemption. Oftentimes in the gospel conversation, I think this is the part that gets so overlooked. God is the one who gave him up. Yes, it was Judas who betrayed him out of his own desire. And yes, the Jews arrested him and handed him over to the Romans. And yes, the Romans nailed him to the cross and led him to, to Calvary to be hung, suffocating in agony. And yes, they, all of them, were responsible for their own sin because they did what they wanted to do by their free will. But understand, it was God himself who ordained it all. It was God himself who not only allowed it, but he ordained it. And it was God himself who sovereignly worked throughout history and throughout the lives of these people and all of their free choices to bring about exactly what he wanted. Ultimately, God is the one who put his beloved son to death. He gave him up for us. If you want proof that God loves you, then look at the cross, because there it is. And this was according to his will and his eternal plan. In fact, Isaiah 53, 10, the Hebrew actually literally says that it pleased God to crush him. That is a thought that just still to this day will not fit fully inside my head. It pleased Yahweh to crush him. It was God's will to put him to death. Make no mistake, God didn't simply allow it to happen. God actively caused it to happen. It was his will for Christ to come into the world and to die on the cross in order to make atonement for our horrendous sins. And it was his will that Christ bear the wrath that we rightly deserve. I love that song, In Christ Alone, because it's clear for 
on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. It was his will that he suffered that wrath that we deserve. That's why Jesus in his humanity in the garden said, if there is another way for this to pass from me, then let it be so. But he said, not my will, but your will be done. God the Father in his own will handed his son over for us. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means then that salvation is completely and totally, 100%, the work of God. And I know, right, that goes without saying, but this is an important thing that I think that it's easy for us to lose sight of over time. That's why there are people still today who will say that a person who gets saved somehow can unsave themselves by their own will and power. That's what it means when a person says they, don't, they, they believe a person can lose their salvation. Right? They're not thinking that someone can lose their salvation like you can lose your cell phone. They're saying that you can deliberately throw it away. That you can choose by your own will and your own mind to unsave yourself as if you had the power to save yourself in the first place. But the word of God completely tells a different story that salvation is God's work. He ordained it, he orchestrated it, he paid for it, and he is the one who, through the Holy Spirit, applies it. God himself decreed what was necessary to satisfy his own wrath on your behalf, and God himself put forward the only sacrifice that would ever meet that demand. His beloved son. Hear Paul's words in Romans chapter 3 again. There is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God, hear that, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. God is the one who made the sacrifice to save you. And in light of that, Paul says he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is the second thing I want you to see. If God doesn't withhold his son to save you, then there's nothing he won't do to ensure your salvation either. Now let's be clear what Paul's saying here. He is not saying that, that God will give you all the things that you want in life. This this is where some pervert the gospel, and uh, they say that what this means is God, because he didn't spare his son, there's not anything he won't give you if you'll just ask in faith. I think you've heard, have you guys heard that before somewhere? Okay. Right. That God will give you, right, the house of your dreams, if you'll just believe. That God will give you the car of your dreams. That God will give you the woman of your dreams. That you can become rich and famous if you will just have enough faith, because because he didn't spare his son, how he won't he give you all things? That's not what Paul's talking about at all. What he's talking about is all the things that are required to bring you safely home. He's talking about all the things that you need in order to endure in your faith, all the things that you need to finally receive the inheritance that he has promised you. You see, the point that Paul is making is if God didn't spare his own son, but handed over what was most precious to him, then there's not any length at all that God isn't willing to go to to finish what he started in you. Christ on the cross is the declaration of the lengths that God was willing to go to redeem his children. If God is willing to take his beloved son 
who was perfect and sinless and put upon him all the weight of your sin and then pour out his wrath on him instead of you, then there's nothing that you need. There's nothing you need for salvation that God himself will not provide. That's what Paul is saying. And if that weren't, again, enough to convince you of the security of the hope that you have in Christ, Paul steps into the courtroom of heaven and says, who can bring any charge against God's elect? Who can bring an accusation against the ones that God has, has redeemed? And, and the first thing I want you to notice is God refers to those who hope in Christ. Um, he calls them God's elect. And understand this is not a mistranslation. It's exactly what the word that Paul uses here means. The Greek word has this, it was de derived from the word eklektos, and it's, it has the idea of choosing, literally meaning that God has chosen. This is further vindicated by what Paul has said of those who come to faith in Christ. In verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn of many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Paul uses this word elect to make clear that he is the author and the finisher of the faith of those who trust in Christ. Those who come to faith in Christ are God's elect. But there are some bigger points that Paul is making here. Paul is continuing his argument that those who are in Christ are secure, and they are secure because God has purposed by his own will to save them. And what Paul is saying is if God himself, who has no rival or no equal, if he is willing to do everything necessary for salvation, including electing them to salvation, if God can do that, then who can possibly bring any accusation against those that he has saved? What can anyone say to change God's mind? Who can bring a charge against them in the courtroom of heaven and cause them to go back, cause him to go back on his word? Now, it doesn't mean that the devil doesn't try to accuse us because he is the accuser and he continually makes accusations against us. Revelation 12, we're told that he accuses believers day and night before God. He continually is trying to bring charges against us. And, and if you've been in Christ for any length of time, I think you know what I'm talking about. I think you've personally even experienced that in your own life. You have heard the whispers. How can God love someone like you who keeps doing the stupid things that you do? How can God forgive you when you continue to, to sin and then repent and sin and repent and sin and repent? How can God love the likes of you? You've repented that same sin a thousand times. You mean to tell me that God's just going to keep forgiving you? That God's going to keep caring for someone like you? Why in the world would God sacrifice his own son for someone like you who continues to fail and fall and fall into sin? The voice of the accuser is continually whispering, trying to persuade God and us that we ought to be cast aside. But Paul said that God himself is one that has elected us to salvation and has done everything necessary to bring that salvation to reality. And so we ask the question, who can legitimately bring a charge that can stand? And the answer again is 
No one. And the reason for that, Paul says in verse 34, 33 and 34, it is God who justifies who is to condemn. Again, our salvation is the work of God. He's the one who justifies, and we are justified by faith for sure that we certainly must believe. Let us always remember that. It is incumbent upon us to have faith. We must believe. But God is the one who does the justifying. He is the one who makes the judicial, judicial pronouncement that we are righteous. It is through his gospel that we're saved. And so he's the one who justifies. And then the term condemn that Paul uses here is another judicial pronouncement, which means the opposite of justify. It means to punish or to judge. And, and if you remember, Paul has already declared that condemnation is not even part of the equation anymore for those who believe. Again, in verse 1 of chapter 8, what, is, what, is, what does Paul tell us? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And what Paul is saying is no one can accuse or condemn us because God has already justified us. No one can undo what God has done. No one can change his mind. No one can overrule his judgment. But it even gets better then. Because not only do we have a righteous judge who has declared us justified, we also have an advocate in Christ who continually pleads our case. Paul writes, Jesus is the one who died. More than that, was raised, who is at the right hand of of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Christ Jesus not only came and lived the perfect life that was required for our righteousness, he not only died on the cross to make atonement for our sin, he not only was resurrected, proving that our hope is secure, he has been also exalted to the right hand of the Father, and he uses that lofty position to continue to plead our case. This, by the way, is in addition to the intercessory work of the Holy Spirit inside of us who is interceding for us there. This is the truth, by the way, that, that John Murray, he wrote of in his commentary. He says, thus the children of God have two divine intercessors. Christ is the intercessor in the courtroom of heaven, and the Holy Spirit is the intercessor in the theater of their hearts. The Son of God and the Spirit both intercede for us. God the Son and, and God the Holy Spirit are pleading our case. By the way, this helps us to see the security of our salvation rests fully upon the triune God. By the way, I love the name Trinity Community Church. The truth is all three persons of the Trinity work together to redeem us and keep us secure. And again, if that weren't enough, Paul points us to the glorious love of God. And he asks, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Again, the answer is no one. No one can separate us from the king. No one can stand against us. No one can accuse us. And no one, as Jesus has said, can snatch us out of his hand. And no one can, say, can separate us from his love, not man or angel. But Paul takes that issue and he presses it beyond just people. And he asks about things like circumstances and our present suffering. Can those things that we experience in everyday life separate us from the love of God? And he asks, he says, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword 
As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. The truth is the call to the Christian life is not a call to a pain-free, problem-free life in this world. If you thought that, I'm sorry to burst your bubble. The fact is Jesus himself has even promised that in this life we will have tribulation. We will have trouble. We will suffer in this life. And, and we may even suffer greatly, maybe even persecution. Right. But even if we don't suffer persecution, we all still experience pain. More than our share, it seems. We've all experienced betrayal or want or loss. We will experience sickness and disease. And this very morning, I got a phone call right before I left. A member of my church was taken to the hospital in an ambulance. I'm going to have to go check up on them later. We all in this life will suffer. And, and coming to Christ doesn't make us immune to the present sufferings of this world. We still live in a world that is fallen, filled full of people who are fallen in bodies that, are, that is buffeted by remaining sin. And so Paul then rightly asks, will these trials, these difficulties that can shatter our hearts, can be, they, those be the things that separate us from the love of God? Will God forget us in the darkness? Will, will he abandon us in our weak moments? Will his love grow cold for us when we struggle in our suffering to look towards heaven and worship him? Or will our own hearts give up on God when the shadows of this life loom so very large? But Paul joyfully says, no. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors who, through him who loved us. Church, let that statement and that truth just settle deep into your mind and your hearts. Paul says, in all of these things, what things? In the worst of things, in the sufferings of life, in all of these things that would threaten our world, and seem to threaten our relationship with God. He said, all of these things, we who trust in Christ, we are more than conquerors of all of those things through him who love us. In fact, in this text, Paul uses a word that, liter that literally means to, to beyond conquer or to conquer to the extreme. The image that's conveyed here is, 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 is not that we end up just barely surviving. We are overwhelmingly victorious. In fact, if you have, one of my favorite movie series is The Lord of the Rings, for obvious reasons. If you've watched The Lord of the Rings, especially The Return of the King, you remember near the end of the movie how everyone had to just go all in to make one final, last-ditch, desperate attempt to achieve victory. And they were all beat up. They were few in number, and the, the future was completely uncertain. And they committed themselves to one last desperate battle, right? And Sam and Frodo struggled up the, the slopes of Mount Doom. I mean, the part that always makes me cry is when he says, I can't carry it for you, but I can carry you, right? But, but they make one last desperate struggle, and then finally the ring goes in, it's gone, and it's over, and they were victorious. But it's just barely, though. By the skin of their teeth, I mean, they won, but it, but it wasn't... It was, it was close. And, and that, was the, that was the image that, that 
that, that we were left with. Frodo nearly failed to, to throw the ring in. Aragorn was nearly killed by a troll. Gandalf was almost taken out by a Nazgul, and this tiny little remnant of the armies of men was completely surrounded and about to succumb to this superior force. And then at the last second, it was over. That is not the image that Paul is conveying to us, church. In Christ, we don't have just enough to get across the finish line into our glorious hope. We don't have just enough strength to overcome the sufferings in this life to where we finally stand in his presence in heaven. In Christ, we have abundantly more strength than we ever will need to overcome because it is he who is the one who strengthens us. We are more than conquerors because God himself is for us. And he, so who can be against us? We have more than we need because God himself is the one who supplies all that we need. And he's the one who justifies us. So then who can accuse us? We will, we conquer exceedingly because there's nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. The same Christ who continually strengthens us. And then Paul, as if the point were not made emphatically enough, says, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul addresses just about every conceivable realm in which something might arise to stand against us and separate us from God's redeeming love. In fact, notice he says that nothing in all of creation, this for me brings me right back to the attributes of God because what we know about God is that he's completely holy. And that means that he is completely other or different or separate from his creation. In fact, there's only two states of existence in all the universe. There is, there is God and then there's everything he created. There is God and then, then all other things. And only God is self-existent, eternal, and infinite, while creation is dependent, temporal, and finite. And so there's this gigantic distinction between God and every other created thing. And Paul, in his closing argument about our security, says that all things that were created, all of those things are not God. None of those things can separate us from the love of God. In other words, the sum total of all the forces of the entire universe, as powerful as they may be, are not powerful enough to separate us from God's redeeming love that we have in Christ Jesus. Because if God is for us, then who could be against us? God is for us. He is the one who's with us. He is the one who is in us. He's the one who does all that we need, and he is the one who justifies us. So Paul ends with a glorious and worship-filled exclamation that nothing in heaven or on earth can separate us from the love of God because God is all-powerful and sovereign and is the one who saves us and keeps us safe. Salvation is the work of God himself and no other. And no power has the ability to undo that. We, brothers and sisters, are indeed safe in the hands of God. Again, the hymn writer wrote, On that day, Freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face, full arrayed in blood-washed linen, how I'll sing thy sovereign grace. Come, my Lord, no longer tarry, bring thy promises to pass, 
for I know thy power will keep me until I'm home with thee at last. With that, there's always for me just three simple applications. If you're not in Christ, there is a hope that he's offering today. Repent and believe the gospel. Turn to him. He will not put you to shame. He will not turn you away. Trust in him and him alone for salvation. And the word of God declares that you will be saved. And for those who are in Christ, rest in that hope. There, my Christian life has been marred with many days of me trying really hard to make God love me. <laughs> oh, I have failed. And praise the Lord that it's not about what I can do, but what he's done for me. In resting and trusting in that alone. And then, for those of us who are in Christ, this is the message that the world needs to hear. Not that, you know, we hate you because of this reason. It's, there's only one hope, and that's Jesus Christ. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you so much for the privilege to be able to stand here and share the hope of your word with this church family. A church family, Lord, that I have just met, but who were my brothers and sisters in Christ, that we are united by a bond that cannot be separated because our love can't separate us from you. And so, Father, in our common faith, Lord, I rejoice in the fact that we have trusted in you and you alone by faith. And I just pray, Lord, that our hearts would be edified by your word and that we would continue to grow more and more in love with you and that we would grow in unity of the faith and that we would then take seriously the admonition to go out into the world and to make disciples of the nations. I pray, Father, for those that have need today that you'd meet that. If there are those that are sick or in the hospital, that you would meet them. That If there are those who are hungry, that you would feed them. And if there are those who are struggling with, with, with family issues, that, Lord, that you'd be peace in the home. And that, Father, that you would bring them closer to you, Lord, and that they would know you and know that you were God and that you were faithful. And we would all walk in this confidence that, that you, Lord God, are the author of our, our salvation and that we trust in you and you will see us safely all the way home. We give you the praise, honor, and glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.